0: podcast one production. G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to Cryptonomics. This is our 12th episode, a new special beyond Series 1 of Cryptonomics. Over Series 1, we did our best to explore and explain the way cryptocurrencies and the technology underneath them, the blockchain, will transform our entire world. Along the way, we learned what makes it all tick, how people are using this technology to do amazing things, and what it all means for the future of money, finance, investing, and the economy. Now, when you look beyond the ripples produced by the fall and rise and fall and rise in the price of Bitcoin, you can see another wave, a tsunami of change that will roll over banks and stock markets, even nations. Over the next billion seconds, the entire world of economics, everything that's touched by money, will be changed. That's why we called this series Cryptonomics. For this news special, we're once again joined by our wise and well-read panelists discussing the rapid corporatization of all things cryptonomic and then taking a hard look at what looks like a series of huge frauds perpetrated within the heart of the crypto community. That's coming up on this episode of Cryptonomics. It's a great pleasure to once again welcome Mark Jeffrey to Cryptonomics. Mark is the patron saint of this podcast. Our episode on cryptocurrencies on the next billion seconds was one of the most downloaded episodes of that series, and that episode inspired this series. Welcome, Mark.
1: And, Mark, you have a new video out? I do, thank you, Mr. Pesci. New video is called Crypto Explained Simply, and uh, it's a seminar on Vimeo, and it's exactly what it sounds like. You know, if you had me in your living room taking you know cryptocurrency, all of it, all the coins, all the exchanges, all the wallets, take it from the top and explain it to someone who knows absolutely nothing. that's what this is. So just look for it on Vimeo, you'll find it.
0: Joining Mark is another frequent guest, Rob Tersik. Now, Rob is the award-winning author of Vaporized, a book that explains why and how all that is solid in the world is melting into software, which includes money. Now, Rob, you're doing some very interesting work with GS1. Now, who's GS1, and what are they doing with all of this crazy crypto stuff?
2: GS1 is a global standards body, and... Um, You would know them as the barcode organization. They're the company that issues the UPC codes that are on every printed package. About 5 billion barcodes are scanned a day. Um, The project I'm working on with them is uh, to reunite the physical products with the dematerialized digital version. And uh, that project's called Digital Link. You can search for GS1 Digital Link. Basically, it's barcode 2.0. It'll reunite the physical package with all the digital metadata associated with the product.
0: So where it's been, what what the the chain of ownership has been, provenance, all these things that people actually do care about. That's exactly right.
2: So right now, that's hard to do. You'd think it would be easy to do, but the new generation of smartphones will be able to do AR. So you'll be able to scan just about any product and be able to uh, find the associated data with it.
0: And I have seen some blockchain projects, that allow people to do this with, say, a packet of drugs to make sure that the drugs weren't counterfeited.
2: So they, we're talking about this kind of thing, right? That's right. When we talk about digital identity, counterfeiting is important. Provenance is important. Sourcing matters to people. You know, The, the, the idea then is also not just for people, it's also for automation. Uh, so when we think about blockchain, typically in the context of crypto, we're thinking about ourselves, people trusting other people. But what you really need to think about in the world of exchanging goods, the, the $40 trillion uh, supply chain, the global supply chain, <laughs> it's ripe for automation and those automated systems need to know what they're handling. So if you have a digital identifier uh, that can reunite the digital data with the actual physical product, that means that's how the automated systems are going to see those physical products and be able to handle them safely and securely.
0: What a beautiful lead into the topic for the first half of this show, which is high finance and topic number one is the JP Morgan coin. Now, the head of JP Morgan, Jamie Diamond, has been rubbishing Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. F- for, I don't know, Mark, how long has he been doing this? Oh, gosh, like, like five years, something like that. <laughs> it's all fake. It's all a bad idea. It's all going to explode. And then all of a sudden, J.P. Morgan comes out with their own cryptocurrency. Now, this cryptocurrency is basically going to be used for partners in their own private network to pay one another. So basically, they're setting up a private network and they're setting up their own private currency to be able to pay one another within this network. Does this mean that JPMorgan's come around to accepting the validity of cryptocurrencies?
1: Yes, it absolutely does mean that. Um, however, just to be real clear about what JPM coin is and is not, you know, a lot of people are like, ah, JPM coin made their own Bitcoin. Sort of true, sort of not. You and I cannot own JPM coin. We can't have we can't put it in our in our wallets. Um, this is for banks to exchange value from one bank to another. So think of it like an alternate universe Swift system more than anything else, and uh, the underlying. Technology that they're using is actually not really, not real blockchain technology. And this is sort of a controversial point, but they're using something called Hyperledger Fabric, where when you rip down to the bottom of what that is, it's actually CouchDB and Kafka, which are normal. They're not really blockchain y things. They're more like a normal database that's centralized. So you could argue that this is not even really a real blockchain beyond, you know, not even a real coin. And, and
0: people have done this. I mean, there was a Forbes piece that basically said, don't call it a cryptocurrency because it has these pieces underneath it. And yet it's still a digital currency, a digital settlement system. Does that mean that this is in some sense a marketing ploy from JP Morgan to get some of the juice that you would get from calling yourself a cryptocurrency without actually having to do the hard work?
1: Yeah, they're, they're crypto washing themselves. I mean, they, they, they'll be perceived as being behind unless they somehow are like blockchain people now. Right? Right, and they know this. At least at this moment in history, so they've decided to just stick a blockchain sticker on the outside of something that they probably could have just done with a database, right? So, just right. be honest. That's what's going on here.
2: What's the use of it? My understanding is that stablecoins like Tether were used for people who were trading a lot of uh, cryptocurrency to sort of park their gains in in something that's dollar Correct. denominated, you know, in case there's a lot of volatility. Um, I don't know how useful that is these days, but but that was the point of Tether. Is that what they're trying to do? Is that is that Could that be perceived what they're trying to do here with GB, so GPM coin?
0: If they're trying to do a SWIFT, in other words, to replace SWIFT, and I have seen, I can't tell you how many attempts. Now, for our listeners, SWIFT is the interbank exchange mechanism, particularly if you're going from one country to another. You use the SWIFT transfer network to be able to move funds from one country to another. And the thing about SWIFT is it connects all the banks together, but the most important thing it does is it manages all of. The anti-money laundering. So it's very difficult to move, say, more than $10,000 at a pop using the Swift network because you have to have all of the compliances with anti-money laundering. And so if JP Morgan is trying to do something that runs an endgame around Swift and the fees of Swift, they're going to have to handle all of the work around money laundering for themselves. And I know, having dealt with bankers, that bankers get very afraid when they start tampering with things that could get them into trouble with anti-money laundering laws because that is the one thing that is guaranteed. To send a banker to jail.
1: Yeah, well, that's why they—that's why they went with the Hyperledger technology and the you know CouchDB stuff because they could control very exactly who had access to this quorum network that underlies the JPM Coin, right? So they just don't provide access to anyone who's not, you know, been cleared.
2: So it's really just a centralized mechanism for doing exchanges. It really isn't decentralized.
1: Yeah, No, it's not decentralized at all. (laughs) So that's the funny thing here.
0: But the the supposition there is that none of the banks themselves will be corrupted enough to do uh, anti-money laundering, forbidden trades. And we know from the history, and particularly the recent history in Australia, and also the recent history with HSBC, which got hung up for billions of dollars in fines for this, that this does not happen. (laughs) Topic two. So, Rob, last time we chatted, we talked about Facebook creating a crypto token that would allow people to exchange money using Messenger. We got a little bit more detail. It looks like it's going to be a quote-unquote stablecoin that's pegged to the U.S. dollar. And a Barclays analyst named Ross Sandler has forecasted that Facebook could be earning as much as $19 billion. That's the best case. I think he said the average case was going to be $3 billion in additional revenue a year by 2021 using this cryptocurrency and that in fact just establishing that changes the story for Facebook what do we think do we think that this is going to be an inevitable I mean last time you said it was an inevitable thing do we see it as being even more inevitable now
2: last time I said a lot of things you know I was pretty snarky about Facebook's entry into the crypto world um, on the other hand, this time, I want to contemplate the possibility. So imagine, uh, you know, th- if they roll this out with uh, to the 1.3 billion people that are using WhatsApp, that instantly will put this in the hands of an enormous global audience. And then add in the the full 2.7 billion people that use the whole, you know, Facebook uh, kind of universe of apps. That gives them extraordinary reach to, you know, almost what one fourth of humanity, or more than one fourth of humanity. It's a pretty big, pretty powerful play. So that could be a really Astonishingly good thing to do Think of all the money that's spent um, Transferring money from one country to another That's about a $500 billion business Western Union rakes off a healthy fee there That's a juicy target for them to go after And by the way, remember What I pointed out last time is still true Facebook's not the first company to try to monetize Or do uh, transactions Inside of a messaging app but, but you know what I want to talk about now, Mark is um, Apple has just come out with their big series of announcements, uh, all the new shiny stuff that Apple's going to be introducing. You know a couple weeks ago, they kind of um, previewed uh, a refurbishment of a couple of aging product lines like some of their iPads and so on. and that that was that was they wanted to get that out of the way so that they could unleash this enormous incredibly important announcement about digital services so they cleared the decks and what they revealed is i think kind of like a version of amazon prime video um really just a knockoff of something that already exists much the way apple music is just a dim echo of spotify and then wait hold on there's more apple introduced a credit card okay so like imagine this (coughs) They got the entire universe teed up for this incredible announcement. And what did they drop? A freaking credit card. Like, there aren't already 2,000 other companies that want to give you a credit card with the same APR, the same kind of financing, the same lousy deal. It has an Apple logo on it. Oh, and you get a discount. You get some rebate if you buy stuff from Apple from it. That's the best Apple could do. So what you can see here is a contrast between two important companies, Apple and Facebook. Apple, like all the tech companies, you know, they all got clobbered last fall because the world perceives that the growth of smartphone is slowing down. They need to get into new businesses. They're casting around for a whole bunch of new opportunities. And what Apple's come up with is kind of like you know, nothing new, in my, in my opinion. Maybe I'm missing something, but honestly, I was super disappointed. Meanwhile, you've got to give credit and give some props to Facebook for actually trying to do something that is, A, difficult, and B, risky. So uh, to to you know, Zuckerberg's credit, I actually applaud this move. I know I was snarky about it last time. I am rolling that back right now.
0: And interestingly, the Galaxy S10 was launched last month. And it has a blockchain wallet built into it, right? It has a secure blockchain wallet for your cryptocurrency. And so you can see that Apple had an opportunity here to maybe do something that was to combine Apple Pay and a credit card and a cryptocurrency play that they just have stayed away from on that to do something that, you're right, it's just a bog-standard credit card that really isn't any more interesting than any other credit card that you have. It seems like a really of-
2: big missed opportunity to me. Uh, they could have done something pretty bold and pretty innovative, so I think they're being too cautious. The criticisms of Tim Cook, I think, have validity. That said... The bigger trend here is that the internet brands that we all know and use—you know, whether it's WeChat or, or um, you know, uh, WhatsApp or Apple Pay or Samsung Pay or Google Pay—what they are all doing is they are disintermediating us from our typical credit card companies. And yeah. it's true; like I've already forgotten which credit cards I've connected to uh, to my Apple Pay on my phone. When I'm using the tube in London, I don't really remember which card it's going on. I you know it's Apple Pay, and I love it, right? I love that experience, and I will never switch back to whatever the cumbersome process was before to buy a tube ticket in the UK. So, as, as Apple Pay and other uh, mobile payment mechanisms start to roll out in more and more ways and make it more and more convenient, uh, what's happening is people are building an affinity to an internet brand, and they're losing whatever affinity they had to the payment brand. And that means in the background, any of these companies could swap us out for whatever payment mechanism they prefer. It might be an Apple Credit Card, it might be Some crypto from Facebook or something else, um, it doesn't really matter to the end user because where we interact with the payment system is now happening through your mobile phone on either a mobile messaging app or something like Apple Pay or Samsung Pay or Google Pay.
0: And I think to, to sort of tie this up, the sea change that we saw Facebook announced last month where they're going to basically pull away from the public face to become of an affiliation of networks where users will have private networks amongst themselves so that messenger networks and WhatsApp networks will be private networks. So it becomes more of a WeChat model that, in fact, we can see that the payment mechanism actually aligns with that really well. Well, more than it aligns with, you know, some brand's page on Facebook. Okay, next topic. Jack Dorsey, who co-founded one of the other social media giants, Twitter, but also co-founded Square, which is a big payments company, has announced an effort to do a lot of open source work in the crypto community. He said, quote, These folks will focus entirely on what's best for the crypto community and individual economic empowerment, Not on Square's commercial interests. All the resulting work will be open and free. Now, how much do we really believe that he's not keeping one eye on what Square can do with any innovation in the crypto space in payments?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think Jack's interest in crypto is legit, and I, I've been watching his comments for the last several weeks, and it's very clear that you know he, he was, you know, he was born on the internet along with the rest of us, and he's in love with it on some level along with the rest of us, and he hasn't and he hasn't seen something that's really just sort of you know tickled his imagination in you know the past ten years like crypto has, and it's very clear from his comments that that is where he's coming from. He doesn't really know where he's going yet with this energy and the support, um, other than he wants to be part of this new thing, just like we all wanted to be part of the internet when it was a new thing, right? So I I think he's just proceeding from the heart, and, and and he's figuring it out as he goes along. And it's, you know, that's where he's coming from.
0: So is this similar maybe to the, I'm trying to remember the fellow who founded the Ubuntu project, right, who, you know, again, was a millionaire, right, and said, I'm going to take some of my money and throw it into this open source project, because I see this is a good thing to do.
1: Yeah, I, I think I, I think it is I mean he has commercial interests as well, of course. I mean he's, he's got you know he's got square. Um but I, I do think he wants to see he wants to foster the growth and the adoption of crypto as a whole, whether that includes Square or not, you know, ideally it does, but if it doesn't, it doesn't, and that's fine. I think that's where he's coming from.
0: So this is wonderful quote from him the internet deserves a native currency. It will have a native currency. This is something that all three of us have been banging on about since forever in that you have to use a credit card in order to do a transaction on the internet, which doesn't really make sense. In fact, there should be an internet native form of transacting. Cryptocurrency was supposed to be that, but unfortunately, none of the cryptocurrency formats that we're using have been a good fit for that. Does Dorsey have an inside chance on driving that because he can both drive the development of open source work that will allow other people to advantage it, but then use Square as a means to bring it into the mainstream.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's clearly got the platform to get a lot of, you know, most of humanity is not using crypto right now, right? The the number of wallets is very small. It's something like $50 million. Tops, the uh, people are using crypto at the moment compared to seven billion people on Earth. So, um, can Jack and Square drive that to you know the 99 percent of humans that have never touched crypto? Sure, absolutely. Um, and you know we, we don't know yet what the platform is that will be the cash like version of Bitcoin. Bitcoin isn't it. It takes ten minutes for transactions to clear. It's way too clunky and too hard to use. So there's a lot of theories about what that could be. You know it's probably something like a stable coin on EOS, something like that, because EOS is, you know, Google fast in terms of transaction speed. Um, so it depends on, you know, what horse Jack wants to back. And Jack gets behind one of these things, it could go the distance. So my fingers are crossed that uh, he picks one and goes.
2: One way to think about this is uh, the focus on individuals and empowerment. Uh, you know, you can look at Square as, um, as creating a whole bunch of entrepreneurs that didn't exist because it made it possible for someone to be a merchant just by selling stuff out of their trunk or at a flea market. and They could take a credit card, and you didn't have to rely on cash. And that was enormously empowering for people who previously had to go set up an account with a Merchant Bank and get a credit card swipe terminal and all the headache and hassle and paperwork that some weren't even qualified to do. So um, Square empowered people to become merchants in a way, and and, and do merchandise uh, merchandise anywhere. Right? They could open up a store, be entrepreneurs anywhere. I suspect that. Philosophically, this idea is linked. And whether it means he's going to make it possible for merchants to get paid by individuals however they wish to pay, that's one avenue. That would be great. But another one might be that he focuses on the actual individual and makes it much easier for them to use Square to make payments. Uh, in both cases, I mean, they're sort of the flip side of the same coin. In both cases, those would be squarely in sync with the theories and the philosophies that uh, they shared when, they, when those guys launched Twitter. You know, it's, it's worth thinking back to... Um, all the chaos and all the creativity and all the turmoil that's been generated in public discourse and politics by Twitter and, uh, and Jack's former colleague uh, Biz Stone's fierce commitment to being the free speech party of the free, you know, the free speech wing of the free speech party you know, like refusing to censor Twitter in any possible way so, sure it's had all kinds of dire consequences but it has greatly expanded rhetoric it's a greatly expanded dialogue uh, it's certainly set up a lot of political discourse maybe some for the better, some for the worse but in every case what you see happening uh, with this particular group of executives that work together at Twitter is this fierce commitment towards empowerment of individuals to do things that they previously couldn't do so this is where I think that's heading
0: okay gentlemen we have covered high finance but that's that's not all that's been going on (laughs) oh sorry in fact there seems to have been quite a bit of what i can only call low fraud so topic four Is Bitcoin trading all a lie? So, Marius Kramer on Quora said, Daily Bitcoin is not $6 billion, as shown in coin market cap, but only around $270 So, that's about, what, 5%. So, Mark, you read all of the papers on this topic. What can you tell us? What have we learned?
1: (laughs) Well, we've learned quite a bit. And, um, yes, I did read through all of it. I believe the conclusion of this report and uh, the report basically says that there's 10 or so exchanges that have legitimate volume. And uh, I won't go into how they figured that out, but I read their methodology and I went, yeah, actually that makes sense. Um, And then the rest of them are all faking their volume. They're all lying about the number of people that are trading, not just Bitcoin, but all cryptocurrencies on their platform. So, um, So why would they do this? Why would you just lie blatantly about your volume? I can tell you why. And and the reason why I can tell you why is because uh, I did a token sale for my token, Guard, for Guardian Mm -hmm. Circle. So Mm -hmm. we sold 3.5 million worth of Guard. Um, After it's over, and and everyone who's ever done a token sale, otherwise known as an ICO, some people call them, goes through the same thing. Immediately following the conclusion of your token sale, all of your token holders get on Telegram and they start beating you over the head and saying, you got to get me liquidity, you got to get on exchanges. So there's this massive, massive pressure on all of us to get on exchanges. The exchanges go, oh, hello, people with pressure on them. so they come at us and they say, sure, we'll list you, but you got to pay us five Bitcoins. And then you've got to do, you know, one to two Bitcoin worth of market making, which means market manipulation on their platform. They don't say that's a nice way of saying that. Uh, And then like another Bitcoin worth of marketing services per month, so they have these comprehensive packages and a lot of these guys are just paying them and the reason why they're paying them is because they think there's volume there and right. there is no volume. They're lying about the volume. So the volume, the fake volume is window dressing to suck people like me in. We get emails every day. Like that's what this world is like. It's crazy.
0: Good Lord. Okay, so it is literally it's it's a fraud scheme. I mean, it's a, something that makes something look like something that's not to get you to spend money on something that you're not actually buying because it's not actually
1: there. Yeah, and we didn't know this, by the way. When you know, maybe like six months ago, when our when you know, maybe eight months ago, when our token sale ended, we started getting these emails, and my my partner and I discussed it. We actually discussed. It. We're like, well, maybe we should. And um, you know, and we basically just felt like, yeah, I just don't really. It just doesn't feel like it's actually going to work. Like, there's actually. You know, getting on this exchange is actually going to help anybody. So we, d- we declined. We did not play ball with any of these people. So I guess
0: the first question, Marcus, how can we tell a reputable exchange
1: from a disreputable exchange? Well, this I mean, this report actually calls out 10 reputable exchanges.
2: If you search okay. uh, SEC testimony by Bitwise, you will get it. And the, and the testimony was done on March yeah. 23rd, 24th. Right,
0: and, and we will post a link to the report also on the Cryptonomics website at cryptonomics.show.
1: And, and one thing I want to make sure does, you know, doesn't get artificial, you know, get lost here in this discussion. A lot of people are reading this going, oh my God, 95% of all Bitcoin trading is just fake. And so they conclude that, you know, all of Bitcoin is fake somehow. That's not the case. Um, And also there's the flip side of this story is, is that most Bitcoin trading goes on on over-the-counter exchanges. So Coinbase and all these exchanges don't even know about those, that trading that goes on. And so, you know, the vast bulk of all the trading that goes on for Bitcoin, we, we, we have no way to measure it, right? So other than like Bitcoin transaction volume, to the, which can suggest what's going on. Um, but we've never known what that true volume was in the first place anyway,
0: do we have any? And we don't have any way of measuring that. So even though that the even though the trading volume at the trading exchanges is only five percent of what's been reported, there could be a large sort of I guess gray market of, of exchange activity going on.
1: I would I would think it's maybe double or triple what um, you know what what we can what we can see. And I I say this because I know for a fact. Um, and I can't tell you how we know these things, but I know for a fact that, that um, some of the big banks and other very high net worth wealthy individuals they don't go and you know they don't go on coinbase <laughs> they don't go right. on binance right they go to private individuals and approach them and buy Bitcoin directly from them sometimes at inflated prices because they're looking for a large volume of bitcoin and they, you, know, you can't get that volume of Bitcoin other than in a few places so they pay a premium for that but that premium price is not reflected in the price of Bitcoin on the open market because it all happens. In the shadows, because it's decentralized, this stuff can happen now.
2: One of the big uh, dings against crypto in general and Bitcoin in specific was its high volatility. So, what does this say about the volatility in trading?
1: I, uh, yeah, I don't know that it says anything about volatility. It's just yes, it's still volatile. And I think <laughs> that I don't think that really changes in any direction. So, I think that part of it remains unaffected.
2: So, one thing to to put this in perspective is that uh, the reported volume is about $6 billion, and the real volume is like, uh, I think you said it was $270 million, Mark. Um, So, that sounds really small, relatively. right? That's 5% of the total volume. Um, But, But here's something to bear in mind. Back in the peak, back in December of uh, 2017, when cryptos peaked at their absolute maximum, the total value of all cryptos was about $800 billion, roughly on par with where Apple is today. Hmm. And the volume that we're having reported here, the volume that Bitwise reported to the SEC, the real volume, is roughly in line with what you would see being traded in a stock like Apple. So actually, this to me makes perfect sense. Mm. I mean, they're kind of like bringing us back down to maybe, the, maybe the, you know, this overreported, exaggerated volume was unbelievable. And, I mean, it yeah. was literally unbelievable. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Because it was too large for the given size of the market. Yeah, that's yeah. an interesting point.
2: I, I just hope that this is, uh, I hope this is evidence of something I've been hoping for some, for some time, which is that we're starting to take the noise out of the system and get more signal versus yeah. noise in the trading system. Um, and actually, here's another one. Um, I hate to say this, but it's like you know, the, the whole crypto world was this libertarian wet dream of decentralization and no need for government regulation. And in fact, w- with how this information came out was the SEC in the process of figuring out how to regulate it as the ones that you know, uncovered it and have revealed it and publicized it. Uh, so sadly, this space seems to attract the very kinds of people that regulators are needed to manage and regulate. <laughs> topic five. So, in January,
0: the Ethereum Classic 51% attack. Now, I'll have Mark explain what a crypto 51% attack is in a minute, but Ethereum Classic. So, we have Ethereum. We've talked about Ethereum before. Ethereum is one of the smart contract coins. So, it binds computer code into a cryptocurrency. And very early on, and we talked about the the, the digital autonomous organization, the DAO, and when when it had that bug, when it had that bug, Ethereum split into two forms, Ethereum Classic and Ethereum, and people have traded both of these. And in January, someone or some organization mounted an attack against the cryptocurrency called a 51% attack. So Mark, can you take us through what a 51% attack is?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, with cryptocurrencies, there are people called miners. And the miners are are doing a lot of things, but basically what they're doing is processing the transactions that are flowing through the system. Now... The way the network uh, and all these crypto networks works is that the miners come to consensus on what transactions they are seeing, what are valid transactions, and as long as fifty one percent or more of the miners are good, legit, truthful, uh, the system operates so so the entire bitcoin ethereum, all these guys rely on honesty in 51% or more of their networks. However, if somebody gets control of 51% or more of that network's computing power um, and is able to overwhelm that network with falsehood, uh, then it can start forging transactions. I mean, the whole game is off. The whole magic of Bitcoin just falls apart and bad people can do bad things.
0: It's as if you stacked a jury basically, right? And the jury is going to start to make all sorts of decisions. Alright. Now, there's a lovely site called Crypto Fifty dot That's a website. I'm not, we'll link to that on, the, on our website. But if you go to that, you can actually see that they've calculated the cost of buying enough mining, so buying enough computer power for all of the different forms of coins that are available, and it shows you how much money you have to spend. And when I ran this yesterday, when I was preparing these notes, it said that for me to basically corrupt Ethereum Classic for one hour, it would cost me $5,000, which doesn't seem like a lot of money to be able to go and rewrite a blockchain and then maybe deliver all of the Ethereum Classic to me. Doesn't this mean that we maybe have a bit of a problem here?
1: We do. We do. We definitely do. I mean, I think Ethereum Classic is... Uh, you know it's, it's underhashed if you will there's not mm. there, there's not, I mean any of these networks if there's not enough people who care um, there's not enough interest in the network then uh, there's not enough computing power backing them and so it becomes very easy to overwhelm with $5,000 worth of power yeah, some, right? some of those
0: coins were at $1 or $2 to yeah, overwhelm it's pretty easy <laughs>
1: So <laughs> right, which is which just absurd. Means I wouldn't trust them exactly. It's absurd. Yeah. So we have this on well, here that when, but here's the flip yeah. side of that is that we knew that it happened, right? So it's not like you, yeah. not like you can just take the coins and like no one will know, right? <laughs> Anyone looking at that blockchain is gonna be like, wait a minute, look at this. It's like Peshi just like forged some transactions. <laughs> like you can tell that it happened, right? As we, the only reason we're talking about it is because we know yeah. that it happened on Ethereum Classic. I guess
0: the interesting thing about that is, yes, you can tell that I did that, but that will also mean that you have immediately lost all trust in that coin. And so I could precipitate a massive loss of trust in any coin if I attack it. So it becomes not just an economic weapon, but a weapon that actually defeats the essential trust factor. Yeah. Next topic, there is a company, there is an exchange in Canada known as Quadriga. And Gerald Cotton was the CEO of Quadriga. And last year, he died in Jaipur which is in India at the age of 30 at least that's what's believed to be the case and not long thereafter stories started making the rounds that when he died he took the private keys to the wallets of his exchange with him he hadn't disclosed them he hadn't put them somewhere any anywhere they could be retrieved there were something like 140 million dollars in cryptocurrency plus about another 100 million dollars in state currencies that suddenly Became inaccessible. But the more that people have started to explore this, and there are a number of Canadian regulators who are looking into this, the more the story seems to be unraveling with forged identities and was there a real body and did he really die and has he just actually vaporized with a hundred million dollars in other people's money. And I have to ask you too, how does something that in retrospect looks like such a Mickey Mouse operation, how does it gain so much credibility that people can lose and have stolen millions and millions of dollars?
2: Well, for a currency system that's known for its transparency, I think there's a real problem here. You can open up a company and be completely untransparent. And it's very hard for people to understand who they're doing business with. Uh, so this this goes under the general headline this week of faulty exchanges or corrupt exchanges is yet another example of that. Um, and it's worth pointing out that, you know, um, first of all, we feel bad for the 115,000 people who lost their oh, money. Oh, yes. That's terrible. Um, but it's worth pointing out that, that it wasn't just the, this uh, this fellow, Mike uh, Cotton, is is shady. His partner, Michael Patton, or Payton, uh, equally shady, it turns out. Um, it turns out that he's got a long uh, criminal record. And um, actually, his name is not Michael Patton. And um, it was... It was uh, until 2008, it was Omar Patton, and before 2003, it was Omar Dahani. Uh, and it was also revealed recently that he, um, he was convicted in the United States of all sorts of bank fraud and credit card fraud and computer yeah. fraud and so forth. So um, a person like that could not possibly get into the, um, a regulated security uh, industry. It wouldn't be possible for them to open a business like this or do this kind of trading. So, unfortunately, this unregulated Wild West seems to be attracting the very sorts of people uh, that we would hope to keep out. And um, I, I don't know. I'm going to defer to my colleague Mark here to tell me exactly what transpired because I'm <laughs> the.
1: Well, I mean, this look. This is the latest in a long string of bad people running exchanges that starts all the way back with Mt. Gox. we yeah. will go into that story today. Um, and it just, I mean, to me, this just reinforces what's always been wrong with exchanges. It's the custodianship. Don't leave your damn coins up on an exchange because you're probably going to lose them. And this is one of the helpful hints in my video series, by the way. But nonetheless, uh, the ultimate answer to this are decentralized exchanges. So, And that's where your wallet basically is the only place your crypto ever is. And if you want to trade Bitcoin for Ethereum, out your Bitcoin goes, in comes the Ethereum. It's never up on an exchange. That's ultimately where this stuff is headed. And Binance has got a decentralized exchange coming. There's another one called Nash uh, coming out on the NEO platform. that's supposed to be really awesome in about a month or so. so. I think these things will be where people head because of crap like this. I will point out that I lost
0: point two of Bitcoin because it was stored on my smartphone and my smartphone was stolen. And so decentralized is good, but decentralized I think there has to be some sort of mix between decentralized and then lots of backup copies everywhere which we maybe still need to educate users about and that's going to cause a lot of I think discomfort because people will have difficulty knowing if they've done things right enough
1: we do but I mean there's people like Abra uh, and the Lynx wallet in particular that have backup plans so if you lose your phone, they store your private keys uh, in encrypted key escrow format on their server. So all you have to do is log back in again on a different phone, boom, you get your coins back. So uh, the more we're sort of, we make things that are consumer friendly like that, in addition to the decentralized exchanges, I think these problems will lessen over time. I mean, I, I think regulation would help also, to be honest with you. you know, all of us that are that are coin and crypto enthusiasts, we hate this stuff. We don't like it. We want it to go away. We're totally on the side of let's let's. You know, Let's bring down the hammer on people like this. So, so we're, we're on the same page.
2: In an interesting way, this comes all the way full circle back to my opening comments about digital identity. Um, because the issues we're talking about, you know, losing access to your wallet, when it's fully decentralized, and you lose access to your wallet, the burden is on you, the user, and now you may lose some coins. Other, many people have that story. Um, one of the big issues with digital identity is that it's still very centralized. Even on you know, in most web services, your identity is tied to the app, which actually makes no sense. It's your identity. It shouldn't be governed by or managed by the app. Uh, so there's a push underway right now, maybe this is fodder for a future show to talk about um, decentralized identity. All the same issues that Mark just raised um, about losing access to your wallet, that's also going to be true for identity when we decentralize it. So uh, solving this set of problems, making it much more user-friendly, easier to manage, easier for people to take management or responsibility for their own identity or their own coins, that's going to be super important, that's going to be increasingly important. All right, gentlemen, final topic. So. When our episode
0: went to air last time, you know, it got out there and it's now one of the most downloaded episodes of The Next Billion Seconds. Thank you both very much for that. But then about three weeks after the episode actually went to air, someone listened to it. And eventually they found out that Mark had said, Mark, do you want to repeat your little prediction about the
1: value of Bitcoin? Yes, I predicted that at some point in the fairly near future, and by that I meant like a couple of years, maybe five years, Bitcoin would be worth 250 $50,000 each coin. So the way I found out that uh, the 250K prediction had gone like super viral on, on Twitter was I was actually speaking with a guy in Venezuela who had followed me out of nowhere. And I found it just interesting, a guy out of nowhere followed me from Venezuela. So I started talking to him on Twitter and I asked him, I said, so why did you follow me? And he said, oh, well, because McAfee retweeted your prediction about Bitcoin being 250K uh, per coin. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> it was total news to me. I had no idea. And so I, I went and looked through McAfee's feed and sure, Enough, he had retweeted one of the articles that had come out about the last episode of Cryptonomics, uh, wherein we were talking about Bitcoin being 250K per coin. So that's how I found out uh, about this whole thing going crazy.
0: So, Mark, you made this prediction. Are you still willing to stick with it?
1: (laughs) Yes. As a matter of fact, I am. I think um, 250K per Bitcoin is still very likely. Uh, sometime in the next couple of years uh, i think 5 at the most uh, i think i personally believe it'll happen within the next 2 so yeah i'm i'm sticking with it gentlemen let's lean
0: into this a little bit what kind of crazy insane prediction that you're willing to feel comfortable making do you want to make to close the show with today come on let's
1: play this game i'll let you go first rob since i got myself into so much trouble last time
2: the dematerialized economy, the software-defined economy, has grown at twice the rate of the real economy. So if you hear about 2% growth in the real economy, the dematerialized economy grows at 4%, 4%, 4.5%. I think it's safe to make a prediction that we are going to trade more dematerialized assets in the future. They may be token-backed, they may be encrypted, they may be secured with a blockchain. I hope that would be the case. But I believe we're going to have much higher volume of trading there than in all the other securities. And I think, that's a, I think that we're on that track already.
1: Hmm. I am going to go on a limb on one coin. As you, may, as you may know, you guys both know this. I'm a big fan of EOS, uh, the, the coin and the platform, um, as well as NEO coin and the platform. Um, however, I think that EOS in the near term will move faster because it works better now. And, and mostly I'm talking about the speed. Uh, this has mostly made a big difference in the gambling universe. Um, you know, well, really, just in the gambling universe. But that means that that, that means it's useful. Like, it, you know, people don't gamble with stuff that's not useful or fast. So, I believe that over the next year, we're going to see a, a sharp price rise um, from EOS, and it's currently around like three dollars and sixty cents right now. I think we'll see twenty-five dollars before the end of the year. Um, I think that, and I think it'll just shoot up fast out of nowhere. Um, and then it'll eventually, you know, not long after that, jump up to about one hundred and twenty. That seems to be the pattern of these things,
2: and you're basing that on, on purely practical utility. It's yeah. a great platform to develop decentralized apps.
1: Yeah. Well, also I know that what's coming on top of you know so gambling, sort of the first wave, yeah. the second wave that's already uh, in motion right now are non fungible tokens, which are you know collectibles. Yeah. You know, people are building collectible things, not just coins, yeah. on the same blockchain. There's a there's a, a game co- uh, there's a game company called Mythical Games that is uh, using EOS as the first platform the building on top of, all of those non-fungible token game things are releasing about middle of this year. So mm. I think they're going to take off.
2: You know, it's funny, people um, people tend to think of games as, as kids play or something that childs play, but what they're mistaken is that on every network, games are the first thing where people find utility yeah. and fun, and it sort of gathers uh, momentum in that arena. But we also figure out the economics, because at the end of the day, every game has an economic model at the heart of it. Um, so I think, in a way, what you're, you're doing is supporting my comment about dematerialized, uh, decentralized assets being traded. EOS might be the platform where that happens. So there's about $100 yep. billion of digital assets traded today um, in, in the game world, you know, in the 1,000 mm. online games that are out there.
0: And I'm going to ring in with my own predictions. So I got an email a couple of days ago from Max Kenny, who was one of the guests Early on in cryptonomics talking about his company CryptoFlip, which has been parked because there is basically no market for what he's doing anymore. And I want to use that as an example and go 95% of the companies that have built themselves around ICOs will either be in stasis or be dead by the end of this year. Okay, that brings to a close our news special. Big thanks to Mark Jeffrey and Rob Tercik. If you want to learn more about Mark's amazing new video that explains everything for you or learn about Rob's book, Vaporized, or maybe learn a little bit about GS1 or about Kodriga or any of the topics that we've talked about, cruise on over to our website at cryptonomics.show. You're going to find everything there you need to go deeper, as deep as you need to learn as much as you want. That's cryptonomics.show. The Next Billion Seconds Cryptonomics was written and presented by Mark Pesce, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Matt Nikolich. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Next Billion Seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesce thanking you for listening.